Welcome to the Horizon Podcast, where we dive deep into the minds of extraordinary professionals, uncovering the stories, inspiration, and wisdom that have shaped their careers. I'm your host, David Lovejoy, and I'm thrilled to embark on this journey with you. Today's guest is Yvette Owo, managing partner of YOLO Companies, a holding company looking to acquire accounting, bookkeeping, and finance businesses. Yvette has a wealth of experience in strategy and entrepreneurship, having launched three ventures when she was only 10 years old. I'll now let her share a bit about her background in her own words. Thank you to everyone who is watching or listening. My goal today is to provide you with maximum value in terms of strategy, in terms of being an entrepreneur, in terms of acquisition. So tune in, listen in, I'll be honest and I'll keep it real. My name is Yvette Owo. Oh, whoa, she's doing an interview. And I have YOLO companies as my whole co currently acquiring accounting companies. I actually already own an accounting company called YOLO Accounting. You may notice a brand thing here. I was very much inspired by Richard Branson with Virgin. So that's a little bit of the intro, and then we're going to get into juicy questions. Nice. For folks who aren't familiar with the Hold Co., could you explain what that is? So a Hold Co. is a holding company, and there's different ways you can think of about it. Let's take a few steps back. If you buy stock, you own a part of a company. Anybody publicly can buy it. So if a company is private, whether it's your dad company, your mom's company, the shoe store down the street, somebody owns it. Some or many people hold it. If you take a bunch of companies and you have them owned by one overall overarching company, kind of like an umbrella company, that's Holdco. So in the acquisition world, people often talk about Holdco's and private equity. And the big difference is, do you plan to hold this company for a long time? Or do you plan to buy it, juice it up financially, and then sell it to make money? And so someone who has a Holdco strategy, which is mine, holding company strategy is saying, I'm going to hold this basket of companies with a long-term commitment is my intention. How would that compare or contrast to a private equity firm? So before we do that, an easy comparison. So like, you know how Warren Buffett always talks about once I buy a company, I like never want to sell it. That's an example. He doesn't have a whole co-hope actually has a natural structure because he buys stock. He does, he does a lot of things. People aren't very aware that he does, but of the mindset of buy it, hold it, he's going to die with it, right? Something really bad happens. And even sometimes if it's not doing that great, he's like, it's doing good enough, I'm going to keep it. Now, a private equity company is completely in the game of flipping businesses. So if you've ever heard of buying a house or flipping a house, you buy a house, you fix it up, you sell it for more. That is private equity. Buy a business with high leverage. Now the business has to pay these loan costs. And so now you may need to fire a bunch of people while also increasing productivity, people got to bang out work for the next three to seven years, depending on how long they're holding it. Then they need to sell it for way more. So they need to make money during the time they're working and they need to make money on the exit. So it's like buy it, run them really hard and then sell it to make money and move on to the next. Thank you for that. That's very clear. So you have your holding company and how long have you had that? So I've had. YOLO company since about last fall. Do you have a limit on how many companies you're looking to acquire? How many companies can I acquire in my lifetime profitably and happily is my limit. So a holding company can be, let's say, from two companies to infinite companies. There's no like requirement. 
Yeah. So I use a lot of examples of analogy. So there's a guy, Alex Wilkinson. For some reason you ever see this, Alex, call me. I love your whole coach strategy. Is that tiny? Yes. So he started a company and he had one company and then it made enough money. He bought other companies. So he created a whole call called tiny. Why he called it tiny? I don't know. But anyway, people realize he's good at this, which is basically just asset allocation, making decisions, hiring people, incentivizing them, and then giving them the freedom unless they really need help. So then, and he's in Canada, which you would know. So then he has an e-commerce, which is actually traded on the public market, which is literally just a holding company. So he has a privately held one. So a holding company can be privately held, which just means that any random person can't buy the stocks or can't buy shares or equity or ownership. Or a holding company could be publicly held. Holding companies are really popular in Japan, but the holding company is just a, ba- a company that's a basket of companies. Yeah. When I was over in Japan, I saw a holding company. I didn't realize that it was the same thing. So uh, here we are full circle. Well, I'd like to take a few more steps back while we're taking steps back and talk about something interesting in your background. You told me that you started entrepreneurship when you were only 10 years old. So none of my parents were in business. I was actually banned from selling things. That probably tells you a lot more about me. But when I was six, we moved from Nigeria to the US. And my dad's exact words to my memory were, we did not move halfway across the world so you could sell things door to door to strangers. So when I was 10, that summer, I watched the Muppet Babies. And I'm the only person I know who found this interesting. So I would watch the Muppet Babies and I would go on paint. And I'm also not like very visual. or like I don't consider myself an artist outside of business. I'm not an engineer. So I, mean, I was very motivated. And after much watching the Muppet Babies on Saturday morning, I would try to design something on paint. So paint is terrible. If anyone doesn't know what it is, it's like you can't find a straight line. It's hard. Now I was trying to design something to turn into a product to sell. And pre-background, I'm not good at art or products, anything, right? So that didn't, I was just motivated. So somehow that show, which for most people, something about the weirdness of Gonzo made me think about entrepreneurship. I have no idea. So that summer, I was like, I want to sell something. I started with the lemonade stand. Our house was at the beginning of a cul-de-sac. And I said, great. First of all, like, you know, I did what everyone did. It's like 10 cents. And then it was hot. And then I was like, okay, first of all, we're at the beginning of your drive home. Why would you stop? Second of all, and this is my little brain. Why would you stop? You're almost home. Do you really want lemonade? What is 10 cents going to do for me? Because I had a dollar a week allowance. So I was like, 10 cents. What's the point of this, right? And then I was also the only black person in that neighborhood. And I already had had issues where people wouldn't let me into their house or wouldn't let their kids play with me because of that. So I'm like, okay, the kids in this neighborhood don't particularly like me. I was teased a lot. Some of the parents in this neighborhood don't particularly like me. And like this money means like the revenue is like so low and it's hot. And I don't understand why anyone would stop. So I did the lemonade stand and I was like, this is stupid. And so I stopped. Then I was reading Nancy Drew and Nancy Drew was a detective and she would climb trees. And then I tried climbing a tree and I realized I don't climb trees. <laughs> I was going to climb trees and look into people's windows. That's where we differ. I love climbing trees. Yes, except I can't climb trees. And I'm sure if you had a newspaper where you anonymized your neighbor's <laughs> activities, that would go badly. So since I couldn't anonymize it, I then... So this is my third business. I then wrote stories about my family. That sounds pretty smart. <laughs> yes. But I hand wrote it. So I would handwrite copies. I don't know why I didn't think to print it. I guess I wasn't as... They could figure it out. <laughs> yes. But when I tell you the second company, you'll see why. I was good at delegation already, though. 
So I hand wrote it and then I sold it. And then I had an article where I talked about my mom's, she's not going to like this at all. My mom's poop in the smell. In your defense, you were 10. <laughs> yeah. So instead of the feedback being, and then this is my perspective, they could have just said, don't write the article. The newspaper was then shut down because that was not an appropriate article. And so the second business was a cookie business. And that one was inspired by the Girl Scouts. Cause I was like, Oh, these people can sell these expensive, not that good cookies just because they're cute all over the place. I'm a girl. I can sell random cookies and people feel pressure to, because you're young. And so the same neighbors who I knew didn't necessarily like me, I had no fear. That's interesting. I had no fear knocking on the door asking to sell cookies. But I do remember specific to this day, specific neighbors who like, I wasn't allowed to be in their house if I wanted to look at a child. And I was terrified. Was it because you had like a purpose or a goal that basically went in front of your ego, if you will? Well, it wasn't even the ego. I mean, they didn't want me in their house because I was black. Like that just hurts your feelings in your tent. Right. No, that's fully understandable. I mean, the switch from being afraid to not being afraid. I never thought about it. I think if I want to be in your house, I want to be liked. I want you to treat me like a human, respect me. I want your friend to play with me. I thought about all those things. I thought about selling cookies. Like I didn't, honestly, I didn't even think, I didn't add any other steps. Like, do you like me? It was, do you buy a cookie? Well, the reason I ask is I see a similar thread where I get really nervous giving talks in front of a bunch of people, like on a stage or something. But when I was leading tours, I didn't have that. And I was guessing that it was because like, David, like, didn't have time to exist in that. I was basically an actor. And it's just like, I have to get these people from point A to point B and answer questions or whatever. So I was curious if there was a similarity there where it's like, I have to sell these cookies. I think it was more so in the other one, I wanted to be treated as a human being. So completely different mindset. In this one, my outcome is just buy my cookies. It's a transactional relationship. This is like buying my cookies. Like I realized like it doesn't matter if the cookies are good or bad. I'm young, I'm cute. And also it's embarrassing because this was a pretty nice neighborhood. It's an upper middle-class neighborhood. So you're going to tell me you don't have money. So anyway, so my, my parents, again, I said they weren't in love with all my ideas, but my mom liked the idea of us making cookies together. So I went to the same neighbors. I went and knocked on all their doors and I took cake orders and I wrote them down. Again, I should have typed that up, but again, anyway, I wrote them down and I remember the sheet. And then I had my mom buy, not even the one where you cut, you didn't even make them from scratch, but I didn't make the cookies. I just stood in the room while my mom made the cookies because while she didn't support the business idea, she thought it was a cute mother daughter activity. You're like a little genius, just uh, having people fulfill your plan. Yeah. So she enjoyed the mother or dad. I, said, I didn't actually do anything. I just stood in the room. Well, she also bought the cookie dough. <laughs> to be clear, you'd only been in the country for four years at this point. Yes. And I've moved two or three times. Yeah. Nigeria and then Chicago and then Western Ohio and then Cincinnati. So this is my fourth city that I've lived in at my age 10 and not the fourth home either. I've also moved many more times. I think I've, I've lived in study abroad, lived in other countries. The one thing I've learned about moving is no matter where you go, everybody is a hundred percent sure that the way that they do it where they are is the right way. Yeah. I'd like to jump forward a little bit to what you're doing now is really impressive. But before we get there, talk about Accenture a little bit. What led you to apply to Accenture? You were there for about a decade. What was your big takeaway there? How did that shape you to where you're headed now? You know, I'm big about the how we got there. So 
I was meant to be a doctor, lawyer, or engineer. You mean one of those three? Or- one of those three. Thank Jesus. The pressure was only one of those three. <laughs> <laughs> no, my, my, my parents were like, gave me like three options. <laughs> and so I passed out at the side of blood. So that knocked out doctor. I just didn't like tactical things. Like to this day, I think typing is a tactical activity. <laughs> This is why I think it's hilarious that I try to make stuff, <laughs> but I think typing is a tactical activity. And I was, I thought I was pre-law all of school. And then I entered at the fourth largest law firm in the world time. And I was the only person to intern that wasn't biologically a partner. And I just realized I don't like this job. They don't work together. The job is separate people in separate offices, reading documents by themselves. And I would actually read as what well was appropriate actual documents and actual law and employment law. And, and then I was like, Oh, I also was doing like employment law. So I thought I'd help a little guy. And then I was like, Oh no, if you're in a big company, you're not helping the little guy. You're helping the company, the little guy sued. So it was a big awakening. And so then I just realized I didn't want to do that. And I hadn't wanted to do that for a long time. And I somehow find out about strategy. I don't know how, and I liked it, but I was still on the fence. I thought about getting a PhD to be quite honest. And I was still trying to force myself to do law school because my parents wanted it, but I couldn't write the essay. So I, by that point of my college career, I got extremely good at writing essays for scholarships and blah, blah, blah. And I could bang a winning essay out in two hours. No, much better editor than I am now. <laughs> but I realized I had to mean it to write an essay. I can work very hard, but an essay comes from my heart. And so I realized I could not write any essays for law school. And then I investigated getting a PhD because I really like to learn. I wanted to make an impact in the world but I needed some time to figure it out. And so I was like, what is the most challenging job I can do that's not investment banking? I was really good at finance, but I had already rolled out investment banking because I didn't like the hours. And I never considered any other job in finance outside of investment banking. To be fair, there are other jobs in finance outside of investment banking. But I was like, I'm not going to be an investment banker. I can't be in finance. Then what is the most intellectually challenging job outside of investment banking in business? And that is strategy consulting. And that's how I chose it. In hindsight, I'm, strategy would have been is so much better for me than finance. Finance is more of an individual. I invest in banking more into individual tasks, less EQ. And I eventually, though I was quite strong mathematically, have a like for people. And even though it was much harder for me, I sometimes think I just choose the hardest battle. It would have been much easier for me to just sit behind a spreadsheet. But considering the challenges of how I grew up, things I haven't mentioned in my childhood, the way my mind works very mathematically, it probably would have been easier for me to just do a math track, but I wanted to do a people intensive job. So that led me to strategy. And then I thought I'd do that for two years, which is what almost everyone says who sticks around. That would give me time to get my GRE, figure out if I wanted to be a PhD in sociology or history or maybe psychology. And I just liked it. I liked business. I liked complex problems. I did government consulting. I've done government financial services, insurance services, oil and gas. I mean, industries I don't like, ordered to every one of the C-suite. I just really like business and strategy. I like problems that take people, complexity, and numbers and mix them all together. And so that is like my zone. And then I'm also really passionate about personal finance, which is why acquisition even helps because I meet the two of them together. So in my job, I, on the side, always had a side of this, almost always had a business, but I also taught 5,000 people $10 million in ESVP and 401k. So I was always really passionate about personal finance because without money, you can't be independent. Whether it's your parents or your spouse or 
the rules of the country. Like you need money to eat, to have food. And I live in America. I mean, I studied, I was a certified financial planner while I was at Accenture. You basically financially project for the person to either die at a hundred or when the money runs out in the U.S. You had mentioned something that really resonated with me that I, I often attribute to you, to many people that I speak to. You optimize you kind of prioritize how you're spending your day, like how you're spending each minute. So there's like high level thinking, like strategy, like you mentioned. So sometimes you'll have people do tasks that it's just not worth the ROI or how you're spending your time. So I was curious, where did that enter in? Was that part of, well, you're at Accenture, you're like, wait a minute, I'm spending an hour a day doing this. I think I was always big on efficiency. So when I was 14, this is funny because I didn't have that much to do. I liked strategic planning. So say I had to go somewhere with my family, I would create a, an agenda, I'm a little embarrassed. I would create an agenda for myself. I get out a little notebook and I'd be like, you wake up at this time. I also never woke up at that time, but I'd be like, you wake up. And then I, this is how much time it takes to take a shower. This is how much time it takes you to get dressed. This is how much time it takes you to do your hair. So I would actually list out all the things that were required because I like strategic planning. So it's, that got older and older, which I like strategy and eh, I'm about the planning. So I always liked that kind of thing. So I would do that for myself. It wasn't because I had such a busy schedule. Like my activity may be like, go to the movies with your family at 4 PM. <laughs> you don't, if you have nothing to do all day, you don't need to plan that out. I didn't even always stick to the plan. I think I probably stuck to the plan like 10% of the time. I just liked doing that. So that was already kind of built in something about the idea of being efficient with use or having a plan. So I'd like to close with three questions. Two of them are kind of just abstract. Feel free to to say whatever you want. Your high level takeaway, your advice to everyone listening, what is entrepreneurship to you? Or what's like one big thing that you learned that you want to like a one liner that you want to leave people with from your experience with entrepreneurship? Same question for strategy. Third question is what do you want to tell us about YOLO companies? So the thing that I want to tell people about entrepreneurship is not probably what you expect, is that you are your most valued asset. And that's not just your skills, not your intellect, your emotions, your mental health, your ADD, your depression, your health issue from the car accident. You have got to take care of yourself. Your customers want the results of your effort. Your employees want the results of your efforts. Investors want the results of your efforts. The only person whose job it is to take your self-interest into mine is you from now until the day you die. And so you've always got to take care of yourself. And we're going to get off track, especially if your language is a language like mine is like acts of service. It's even harder. Take care of yourself. A dead entrepreneur is not an entrepreneur. Even Michael Phelps, when he, he talks about he's won more swimming medals and how he battled depression, take care of yourself. That would be my number one tip for every entrepreneur. And that looks different for everyone, but take care of yourself and know that the only person in this world who is committed to that job is you. Yeah, that's not exactly what I expected, but I'm grateful for the advice. I think that everyone should be reminded of that daily. And then for strategy, you, you love strategy. You've been a strategist for decades at this point. What's your high level, your one-liner for us regarding strategy? With strategy, have your long-term goal. You have short-term steps and be okay with things changing. So like those three things, 
most people don't know what the long-term goal is. So if you don't have a long-term goal, you can't have a strategy. You just have steps. It's like, if you don't know where you're going, you're just walking around. Most people are just walking around in life. That's a really good point, actually. Like you just threw that line away. But if you don't have a long-term goal, you don't have a strategy. Yes. When it comes to life, most people don't have a long-term goal in every area of their life. So they're just walking around the norm. What should I weigh? How much time should I spend with my kids? How much time should I spend with the spouse? What do you want to be like as a parent? What do you want for your health? What do you want for your net worth? What do you want for your meaning of your life? So if you don't have something that you're going to, you can't have a strategy. Be flexible with how you get there because life's going to happen. And there isn't necessarily bad. There's just, you didn't like it and you did like it. Well, thank you for that. That fully satisfies my curiosity in asking those two questions. I'm sure you could write a book on each of those subjects, but regarding YOLO companies, what would you like to leave us with? What I would like to say is if you know an accounting company that is modern and is B2B focused, reach out to me at info at yolocompanies.com. And YOLO means you only live once. So we call it YOLO companies because if you've got that business and you just, you want to sell, but you're afraid of how people think about you, YOLO, you only live once. Sell that business to a place that you feel good about. You only live once. Let's buy these businesses. Let's hold them. Let's take good care of our people. Let's create growth because we only live once and life is so important. Let's do right by ourselves. And that's what the ethos of YOLO companies is. I like it. I thought maybe your partner had the initials LO. So it was, uh, you know, Yvette OO and someone LO. So YOLO, but that makes a lot of sense. Dave, thank you so much for the interview and for everyone who's listening. Thank you for being here and follow more of David's stuff. I'm sure it's all amazing. Thank you, Yvette. It's always a pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Horizon podcast. New episodes go out Mondays. Next week's guest is Victor Brelo, who is Senior Associate of Strategy and Planning at Uber. He will talk about how he applies strategy to solve problems, increase efficiency, create value, and improve the user experience. Broad applications for sure. Tune in to leverage information arbitrage in your own role. Until then, eyes on the horizon.